1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we aromatise your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, James Hayes continues our conversation about the science of odour. But first, here's a news follow-up on the COVID Fail app and salted masks. Salty on the inside. You can put them in mask pockets. Last week I reported how surgical masks were getting salty filters added at the University of Alberta and how soaking a paper towel in a salt solution and drying it can make a filter that you can put over a cloth or disposable mask. The salted filter will kill coronavirus in airborne droplets that hit the filter, as developed at Boston University. I expressed doubts about whether it would also work to put the salty filter paper inside the pocket of a washable cloth mask, since I hadn't seen any experiments of that application. After the episode was broadcast, I found a YouTube video on Nationwide 90FM of Dr. Alfred Dawes in Jamaica, showing his team's research that you can put salty filter paper inside a cloth mask pocket or an inside layer. Based on microscope work and looking to see which different filters are the best properties for the salt to sit inside and, and attach itself to the fibers to form a copper filter. We came up with a simple coffee filter and the coffee filter can be used or if you use multiple layers of toilet paper or napkin or paper towels. And the crystals are actually embedded within the fibres, when you look under the microscope, you will see the fibres being coated by the salt oh. crystals. And the holes that were there, they are a lot smaller. So it improves the filtration ability. You can simply get a bandana or a scar, put it in it, fold it over and tie it across your face. It makes sense, because that's exactly what the University of Alberta's researchers were doing with the surgical masks. Putting a salt-encrusted layer of filter inside. I'll embed the video on the Diffusion Show Notes webpage. Not useful. The Australian government's COVID Safe app uses Bluetooth to contact other phones running the app and record their ID to identify people you've been near if you contract COVID 19. It's supposed to find the people that human contact traces miss. The app has been beset by compatibility problems, particularly with Apple phones, where it doesn't work most of the time. There's also been the problem that Android and Apple COVID-safe phone apps don't talk to each other most of the time. There's also been the problem that COVID-safe apps on Android phones and COVID-safe apps on Apple phones couldn't talk to each other most of the time. The latest information released shows that the COVID-safe app hasn't identified even one new potentially infected person who hadn't already been identified through human contact tracing. The app has only been downloaded by 25% of the population, which is far short of the 40% that Prime Minister Scott Morrison said Australia needed in order to reopen. Australia reopened while we still had community transmission of coronavirus, and as a result we've suffered the inevitable outbreaks that have forced Melbourne to lockdown again, and the Victorian border to be sealed. This is because the federal government has chosen a suppression policy over an elimination policy. A suppression policy means that we plan for the virus to survive when we reopen, so that it will always cause more outbreaks, causing lockdowns again in a cycle that destroys public health and well-being and the economy. The ever smaller amounts of money extracted from consumers... ...for the ever shorter periods when less and less businesses can afford to reopen... ...is meant to make it all worthwhile. There is no end to the reopening, outbreak and lockdown cycle... ...until that far off time that we get a lasting vaccine for COVID-19... ...administered to everybody. With the latest research suggesting that antibody immunity... ...may only last a few months at best... ...and the fastest vaccine development in history was four years for the mumps vaccine. The only way to get ourselves through with the least damage must be to change direction and aim for an elimination strategy like New Zealand. In New Zealand, every case is meticulously traced and every contact is isolated and tested. The whole country locks down until there are no more community infected cases left. New Zealand recently had an outbreak caused by two women from Britain. They were given exemption from 14-day quarantine so that they could visit a dying relative. They spread coronavirus to 350 people on their drive from the airport to the remote country town they visited. All of their contacts were identified, tested and isolated. And New Zealand was free of the coronavirus again, able to open without any restrictions, no distancing and no masks necessary. They tightened their testing of incoming travellers. A woman flew from Pakistan and was put into hotel quarantine. On day three, she tested negative to coronavirus. However, on day 12, she tested positive. This shows the value of testing people at least twice while they're isolating. New Zealand has 25 active cases of COVID-19 and they're all in managed isolation. They've had no community-caused infections for more than 70 days. Australia could do as well. If only we had the political will. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Odorific! This is part two of my discussion with Dr. James Hayes about the science of odour. James is a researcher at the University of New South Wales Civil and Environmental Engineering Odour Laboratory. We spoke by Zoom and I continued our conversation by asking him what do you think about pheromones? Do humans
2: detect them? Ah, <sighs> okay. Huge debate. And I guarantee it that if anyone hears this conversation and they know anything about olfactory science, they will probably be angry with me. I'll try and <laughs> go through it as, uh, as painlessly as possible. So pheromones are not technically a part of your olfactory sense of smell system. It is a different system called the vemeronasal organ. It's still in your nose. And in other creatures, it does indeed detect pheromones. We have one ourselves. It seems that it doesn't do anything. It just sits there. <laughs> as far as we're aware, it's, it's useless. It's vestigial. That being said, a lot of people argue about the definition of what a pheromone is. So a lot of people would say like, so moths, when they want to breed, they will exude a pheromone. That pheromone can be detected at very small concentrations. Other males come up to it if you include the definition of pheromone to include individuals, then you might say that we have pheromones. So newborns will smell their mother's milk and will smell their mother's odor. And they will definitely know it's their mother more than anybody else. Is that a pheromone? It's at very small concentrations. It might go through the vomeronasal organ. It probably doesn't. Does that count? I personally say no. I'm sure a lot of people would say, yes, it does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so the other area of controversy with pheromones, of course, is sexual attraction. Yes. And if it's not uh, going through that organ...
2: <laughs> no, look, there are certainly odours that improve sexual attraction, especially one of the classic examples is, is that if you take particular body odours from siblings and then compare it like a sister and a brother or another relative and the woman sits down They'll smell a particular odor from a relative or something like that. Even somebody they don't necessarily interact with that much. And they compare it to a stranger. They tend to prefer the stranger. So there is something there. There is something saying that odors or pheromones are saying don't interact with this person. They're not a good breeding partner. There is something in that. And there are certain colognes and smells that can be associated with manliness or womanliness. Again, is this like a cheat system? I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen.
1: So more generally, what's happening in our bodies? If it's not a special smell gland or anything like that going on, what makes us smelly?
2: Okay. So body odor is typically formed with sebaceous oils that we release through our skin. And there are particular bacteria that eat these oils and they will, they will excrete particular chemicals. They used to tend to be sulfurs, and as I mentioned before, sulfurs are something that we're very uncomfortable with. The other thing is, is that there are certain foods, um, the classic one is garlic, and if you eat garlic, the body odor that you're exuding through your pores, that's not really garlic, that is actually something called allyl methyl sulfide, which is when your body is converting all that garlic into something else, it releases a sulfide. We don't like sulfides in our body, we get rid of it somehow, and that's typically what happens. Again, this is very culturally based. A lot of people coming from Asian countries smell Europeans and Australians and we smell like off cheese or rancid milk or something like that because we have a lot of dairy and that's something that they're not particularly accustomed to. I'm sure you can think of lots of other examples in this regard. So it's very often a cultural experience about how bad a a body odour is. There's suggestions from various Regions that certain
1: odors will make you more aware or more relaxed or have different effects on your mood or your feelings. Is that all just cultural and experience association or is there an actual physiological effect somewhere there?
2: There's a psychological effect. So, using classical conditioning with Little Albert and everything else, and I won't go into Little Albert because it's kind of sad, but if you associate a particular stimulus with something else, so the other classic example, of course, is ringing a bell and dogs begin to drool because they know when they ring the bell that they're going to receive food. If you have a particular odor and you're doing something in particular, that will basically cause your brain to get into that mood. So what I like to do when I'm studying, I'll have a particular odorant, I like orange, for instance. I smell, sniff a bit of orange and that tells my brain I'm ready to start uh, thinking properly. With regards to doing anything beyond that kind of classical conditioning. I haven't found anything in the research myself.
1: And there's talk of dogs having an enormously stronger sense of smell than humans, that they could detect disease if they're
2: trained. Yes. So I'll give you an example. I'll I'll try and describe just how good dogs are at sniffing things. So we have about 5 million of those smell receptors, olfactory receptor neurons in our brain that translates us to having about one trillion odorants. Comparatively, dogs have 200 million olfactory receptor neurons, and that translates to about 40 trillion odorants if we're just using, like if we're just extrapolating. Because to be honest, we don't know how much they can smell things. We don't know what limits. They are far beyond the limits of our best analytical machines. They are probably far beyond the limits of what we can reproduce in the laboratory. Because at those levels, you don't know if you're causing contamination and things like that. They are very, very good um, s- sniffers. Can they smell disease? Yes, they can. This typically has to do with them noticing variations in a person's odor. So they will say, going back to the strawberry, so a strawberry consists of about seven separate chemicals at different concentrations. They all combine together to create the idea of what a strawberry is. We think, although we can't be certain that dogs have the same thing, if they smell these particular odors in a particular concentration, they can say, this is a type of cancer, or this is another sort of disease. They've recently trained dogs to detect COVID-19, and it won't probably be from the virus itself because, I mean, they're not really odorants, but it will probably be the body giving off certain chemicals as a part of the response to COVID-19. The other good example is that without training, dogs can typically detect when their owners are about to go through a shock or some sort of seizure due to diabetes and they smell sweet and they'll start licking the owner to let them know that something's going to happen.
1: And of course, controversially is police sniffer dogs because there seem to be studies showing that they pay more attention to what their handlers want
2: than what they're smelling. This is true. There are ways of avoiding it. We do find that there's laboratory, I was about to say lab, but I think that would confuse it if we're talking about dogs. There are laboratory tests which show dogs are exceptionally good sniffers. When that translates to real world setting, they tend to do a fair bit more poorly. This can be a variety of reasons. If it's a training procedure on the part of the handler, then there's certainly potential to fix that problem if that's what it is, but we don't really know it could be cues we're unconsciously providing to the dogs, it could have something to do with their training regimen, it could have potentially something to do with the environment, and they're missing cues in a way that we just don't understand yet. Again, because testing with dogs is so challenging, answering these questions requires a huge amount of very careful and considered approaches, and we we kind of need to do that if we're going to improve detection dog outcomes.
1: And of course, with COVID-19, one of the symptoms that some people report is a loss of smell. Yes.
2: I I read about this a little while ago and I was quite fascinated. So typically what happens with most colds and and flus, you will have a person start off, their mucus will kind of build up and accumulate and get cloggy and that'll stop chemicals getting to those receptor neurons and then it'll get progressively worse. With uh, covid your sense of smell just shuts off immediately, really aggressively. The reason for that being is that you have special structural cells that keep up your receptor neurons and the inflammation response from your body causes those cells to inflame and not do their job properly. So it's kind of like pitching a tent and then having the tent poles kind of fall around you and uh, not doing their job. And that's what happens. Fortunately, it's also been reported that your sense of smell does return once the virus has left your body. Because there were suggestions in the press that it was uh, the smelling parts of the brain rather than just the senses in the nose that were going a bit wrong. That seems unlikely. There is some very interesting research in looking at how the olfactory senses of the brain can be used to measure certain mental ailments and things like that. So... For instance, there is a smell test that is very accurate, more accurate than trained physicians, to say whether someone has high-functioning autism or Asperger's. And this is based upon people smelling a suite of odorants, and the way in which they react to particular odors and assess their intensity gives what we like to call an olfactory signature, and it'll look like a little graph. And we can say, with that kind of signature, this person probably has Asperger's. It's also used for a variety of other things. I think the core thing to understand for this is that olfactory receptor neurons are brain cells. All of this is going through the brain. So if there's something wrong or different mentally, then you you can use neurons to check that. In fact, there's a researcher, research group, led by McKay Sin down in the south of Australia, and he's extracting olfactory receptor neurons Completely from the nose, and he's running tests on them, putting them under the microscope, and that's also providing um, some diagnostic abilities for certain mental ailments. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool stuff. Well, that
1: relates back to the earlier question I had about where a sense of smell can cut in and out, yes, be absent for a while, and then suddenly there, and then suddenly gone, and brain.
2: Yeah, a loss of smell. Is actually a very, very good predictor of imminent loss of life. Uh, it has a five year prediction for mortality. If you mm. do find yourself, for some reason, losing your sense of smell, um, I recommend going to a doctor. And this has things to do with the fact that because these ol- olfactory receptor neurons keep um, growing back, there's something wrong with the cells regenerating. And that, that might imply that other things are happening with the body that you might not be aware of.
1: Goodness, would you go to see a neurologist or an ENT specialist?
2: I don't think I'd go to either. I think I'd just go to a, a doctor because it, it'll predict things like something's wrong with your heart, something's wrong with your liver. Just just have an all-round check because it could be all sorts of things.
1: <laughs> well, that's a good one for people to know. Yeah, I was asking about the sense of smell going on and off because I've had that for about 17 years <laughs> since oh, I got a okay. of fish poisoning. I don't even notice that it's missing until it suddenly comes back and I can smell again. And it's like, Oh yeah. What, what, what kind of fish poisons are? You? Oh, it's called ciguatera. It's a tropical. oh disease Tropical
2: fish stuff. Out. Yes. Yes. That mm-hmm. would have happened because it's a neural based poison. Yes. I've heard yes. of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that'll just click on and off. Oh, it's that's different. I'm so on. sorry to hear that.
1: And it's, yeah. it's really odd because you don't notice as much when your sense of smell goes yes. because it's an absence
2: but when it suddenly comes back, you're going, oh, forgot <laughs> about that. <Well>, <laughs> I'll, I'll go into details. That has to do with uh, something called olfactory adaptation and habituation. Really, really complicated cascades of uh, yes, hormones yeah. and stuff telling your body not to overdo it. But if your body isn't prepared, it'll hit you with those things really aggressively. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's an interesting experience. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were talking about how we can. Say, we can smell lemon and then we can smell strawberry. What I like to describe it as, and I'm sure you have some musos listening to this. If you think of a keyboard and the smell of lemon is just one chemical, limonene, and that's like just pressing a single key on the keyboard. Meanwhile, you have things like chords. So the C chord consists of three separate notes. They're played at the same time. And when you detect it in your ear, you're not really hearing three notes, you're hearing just one note. And that's how strawberry behaves. Strawberries consist of seven separate chemicals, and they all have, need to have a particular concentration at a particular interaction with your olfactory receptor neurons, and that will produce one, let's call it, note of strawberry. And that's how a lot of chemicals work. That's how we can extrapolate from just 5 million olfactory receptor neurons into one trillion separate odorants. And once that smell goes, so in our evolutionary past, we devoted a lot of our brain power to our sense of smell over the years, because we've become apex predators and all, all other sorts of things, our sense of smell has become less important to us. So those parts of the brain are where emotions now exist. As a result, when you smell things, they still go through those parts of the brain. And that's why we have a very strong emotional connection to perfumes and colognes and You have such an aversion to body odour because it has an emotional characteristic to it that no other senses really have. So the sense of smell deteriorates as you age.
1: Yes. Is there anything people can do about that? Or can you just increase your
2: perception of it by training it or paying more attention? You can pay more attention to it. A long time ago, what I would have loved to do was conduct an experiment where you have people who are a little bit older and they're losing their sense of smell and as a result they're not able to access those olfactory memories that we were talking about before. There would certainly be a way that we could artificially correct for that and improve and uh, enhance concentrations of particular chemicals that they're losing their ability to detect so they can get those olfactory memories back and improve their quality of life. I think with an aging population, I think that's a really viable way of improving the lives of a lot of different people. I would love to do it, but we'll have to see where the funding comes from. <laughs> well,
1: there's also, of course, industrial electronic noses.
2: Yes. Now, my boss, Professor Richard Sturts, who leads the Oda Laboratory, he's done a lot of work with electronic noses. Electronic noses are valuable in certain circumstances but they do have some pretty severe limitations typically. They're only able to detect a handful of odorants in industrial application. That's typically things like sulfur and other really strong odorants that people are going to be upset with. You can apply them to other experiences as well. Their detection ability is usually worse than humans. So they're valuable for detecting like gross odor violations where things have gone very considerably wrong but when it comes to like quite fine-tuning things they're not as useful. The other problems are is that they're quite expensive, they require a lot of upkeep because again like our noses they're interacting with volatile chemicals all the time and so that'll degrade their their ability to detect things. So yeah I do feel that they have uses. I don't think that the technology is there yet to really replace the human nose. I don't think it's going to be here for decades. Our best analytical machines, in some instances, aren't better than the human nose. That was the second part of my
1: interview with James Hayes about odour. Next week, James will start with smell vision And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash Ian Wolfe. Support Diffusion by buying from the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
0: Science is fun.